Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Jessica Obeid, an energy consultant and associate fellow at Chatham House, about Lebanon's electricity crisis. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jessica Obeid is an energy consultant, a senior global advisor at the London-based consultancy Azure Strategy, an academy associate with Chatham House's Energy, Environment, and Resources Program, and a non-resident fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. From 2016 to 2017, she served as the chief energy engineer at the UN Development Program in Beirut, where she had previously served as an energy engineer for eight years. Jessica, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. So how did you get into energy as a a young Lebanese woman? Why energy? I think it's probably because we do have an electricity sector that seems quite complicated, but it's actually technically quite simple to solve. Uh, But we haven't had reforms in the past three decades. And I was interested in that part and why electricity was, was quite complex to provide as a service. And I think at some point I realized, and there was so much interested in renewable energy as a future of uh, electricity provision. And at some point I did, I did realize that technology by itself without the right policy tools and without accounting for the broader political context is not going to get so far. So eventually I, I did move into policy for that. So you studied as an engineer first in Lebanon and then in France. It was a program between Lebanon and France. It was political science, but I did my electrical engineering degree here in the Lebanese American University. And you learned about conventional thermal electricity generation. You burn fuel and you create electricity. Isn't that the way Lebanon produces all of its energy? Yes. Unfortunately, the biggest part of it is through thermal conventional fossil fuels, but this is also the case of the broader Middle East. And so many countries have had so much advancements in renewable energy and the Middle East and Lebanon also in particular have been mostly discussing uh, renewable energy having plans, but lagging behind a lot in terms of implementation. And is that because there are vested interests who don't want Lebanon to develop renewable energy? So if we look into the political economy, then we do see that there are vested interests, as you mentioned, across the entire value chain and electricity provision. And we notice that in the fuel industry and also because there is a high shortage of electricity supply in Lebanon and mining the gap has been through a proliferation of diesel private generators. So there are vested interests in the fuel economy and the informal generators economy in procurement also, uh, which is a barrier for renewable energy because a more deployment of renewable energy would achieve energy security and more affordable electricity, but it also challenge all these vested interests. From a consumer perspective, the electricity tariffs in Lebanon from the National Electricity Company haven't been changed in decades. Electricity for the consumer 
on the base level, it seems relatively cheap, except that, as you say, you have to keep supplementing with diesel and, and other things because you don't have reliable electricity at that price. Yes, absolutely. So when we look into the total electricity bill and when we account for uh, the electricity for the utility, that is, uh, as you mentioned, cheap, when we account for the cost of the kilowatt hour from diesel generators, that's actually very expensive. So the total electricity bill ends up being uh, expensive, not only for the average citizen, but also for the commercial and industrial sectors, which is decreasing their uh, competitiveness as well. So who's making money? And that's how we get to the political structure of Lebanon. So the system was designed kind of to safeguard a power sharing of the different sets and the leaders of the parties that have sectoral, uh, sectarian affiliation. And when we look at it, it's like almost everyone has a piece on the, of the pie. Otherwise, it would have been easier to implement reforms, but reforms get kind of lost and get into lots of bottlenecks and gridlocks, and which, which is probably explained in the system in which everyone has, has no incentive to change the status quo. Except for the people who are paying higher than normal costs for electricity, because you have this patchwork system that ultimately relies on inefficient generation. So yeah, the people have been paying not only uh, that double electricity bill that's very expensive. Um, the debt of the electricity utility, because it sells, it produces very expensive electricity and it sells at cheap cost, and it has very high losses. Uh, so the debt of the electricity utility has been paid for by the state, and the state has been actually covering that loss every single year from uh, Lebanese depositors and other depositors, money in the bank. So, and it ended, it's also a high contributor to the debt in Lebanon. So now we have the debt to GDP ratio is almost 194% in Lebanon and the economy is collapsing and the electricity sector is has contributed to 40%, 43% of, the, of this public debt. If everybody is paying a lot for electricity and the electricity is not reliable and it's contributing to the national debt, why is there not a broad popular movement to say enough? That's also, I think that's very con complex because that also tackles not only the electricity service, but also the provision in the country has been unreliable, very costly. If we look also on water, it's the same thing, all kinds of services. And the people are kind of saying enough, but they don't have a platform or mechanisms that are actually, that promote accountability. And they don't seem to find a way to actually, to actually change anything. So people have taken it to the streets. There have been so many protests. There have been uh, block roads. There have been civil movements, but yet it hasn't resulted in any drastic change. And that's because the system is very complex. So what the Lebanese are facing is not just one person in power who doesn't want to, to have any change, but several people and backed by their sectarian uh, religious figures who do not want any kind of change. So the system has kind of failed. You've worked on electoral systems in countries other than Lebanon. And, and in many cases, 
in the Middle East, you do have centralized utilities, often state-owned, that are providing electricity. How much of what you're describing, the sort of vested interests, the, the, the inefficient production, the resistance to change, how much of that is, is widespread in the Middle East? And how much is really due to Lebanon's particular sectarian-based political system? So we find inefficiencies in the electricity sector across the broader Middle East and vested interest and procurement that does not provide uh, good value for money and unreliable services or expensive services across different countries in the Middle East. But the closer to Lebanon would be Iraq. But then Iraq also has kind of similar system, which kind of explain why the system is actually a huge trouble and a hinder to any kind of uh, reform. It just deters any kind of potential reform. And this is the sectarian nature of governance and the, the, the inviolability of sectarian interests in both politics, economics, and government. Absolutely. So uh, what we see in these two countries, especially in Lebanon, as the economic situation is much worse in Lebanon, is that every time the political figures have been cornered, they do use that, use that element of fear and trigger that sectarian uh, sectarian clash again to kind of keep themselves in power or maintain their, their constituent space. So it seems to me from the outside that there are sort of two routes forward. I'd like you to explore each one. One is there's the potential of finding really large gas reserves off the coast of Lebanon. Would that be a game changer for the way the electricity system works? It might help in the electricity sector in the sense that what we might have is actually uh, offshore gas and gas would reduce the cost of electricity production because Lebanon is one of the few countries that still relies on heavy fuel oil and gas oil for power generation, which are very expensive and also very pollutant. So natural gas would help in this sense, but you cannot expect it. So it would reduce the cost. It wouldn't actually be a huge game changer. First, because at the point we're having this this talk, there haven't been any actual discoveries of gas in Lebanon. And if we do find anything in the near future, say in 2022, uh, the production would take at least eight years. So but it would be 2030. Countries would have diversified. Lebanon should be reliant more on the available natural resources, renewable energy. So we cannot expect it to actually be a game changer, especially as that's not going to happen before 2030. And we don't have the infrastructure for it as well. And we cannot expect a better governance in the petroleum industry where we do not see any govern any good governance at all in any of the sectors in Lebanon. And I always give this example is that Lebanon hasn't managed to have good governance in waste management, so we cannot expect them to actually have a good management in a high value commodity like gas. If that's not promising, the other possibility is renewables. What do you think the prospect for renewables in Lebanon is as a way to, to, to change the system? So the good thing for Lebanon is that we have abundant renewable energy, whether it's solar energy, wind energy, or also others. But these are first cost competitive. And we can also implement a different kind of governance model in terms of the provision of, serve, of electricity service. So thermal 
installation is mostly centralized, but we can decentralize renewable energy generation. That would reduce the cost. So we also have a, a very weak grid. That would reduce the cost of needed investments for the grid. That would reduce the bottlenecks in the, in the political uh, gridlock because it doesn't need central government approval much to actually have decentralized renewable energy. So we do need a decentralized renewable energy load just to provide some incentives and some sort of policy consistency for investors. But decentralized renewable energy doesn't go through, doesn't need the approval for implementation from central government, just like centralized uh, utility scale thermal projects or renewable energy projects. It would also provide affordable electricity to, to the consumer, to businesses, and help the economy thrive. So you could have individual municipalities essentially with their own electrical companies that supply the municipalities. Kind of. So there are different models, and it could be a utility, but it could also be some sort of cooperative model where it, it would just so the legal framework for this is very straightforward. The municipality and the local people can come together, form a cooperative, and have different shares of the renewable energy system, depending on how much investment costs they're willing to provide. It could also benefit from a lot of the aid that Lebanon receives from international donors and also from the remittances of diaspora. So there are different models to implement this in terms of legal frameworks and financing mechanisms that would bypass the entire central companies. And how do the operating costs of renewables, if you were to have a, a whole series of small electrical systems supplying municipalities and cities, what would the operating cost be and what would the, the sort of startup cost be as a comparison to, to relying on the current system? So I cannot give a definite figure because it depends on the type of system that's going to be implemented and the capacity and the size of it. But one way, so the biggest cost would normally be in renewable energy is is if we're going to include battery storage because renewable energy is intermittent and we need to store electricity for nighttime use if it's the case of solar or when it's cloudy or so. And one way to bypass this is to use or rely on the existing diesel generators. So since we do have distributed diesel generators distributed across the entire country, we find them in different neighborhoods some municipalities have their own generators. So it would be simple kind of to have a hybrid model where we install a solar system that would be connected to the diesel generator and to the utility. So consumers would primarily get electricity generated from renewable energy if it's solar when the sun is there and complemented uh, with either the utility or diesel generator when there isn't enough sun. You had been a little bit dismissive of, of natural gas and said, well, it would take at least eight years to develop it, even if we found it. How long would it take to adopt a pretty serious system which relied, as you say, on, on renewables backed up by diesel? How long would it take to, to have that make a difference in Lebanon? So this could be rolled out within six months it's not a sustainable long-term kind of solution, but Lebanon has gotten to a point where we 
the economy has collapsed, Lebanon has defaulted for the first time in its history a year ago. There isn't yet a financial solution. Uh, Lebanon doesn't have enough foreign currency reserves to import fuel anymore. So we're getting to a place where we're hit, we're almost going into a complete electricity blackout, whether from the utility or the private diesel generators. So, so we need to fast track any kind of solution that would rely on available natural resources. And the only available resource we currently have is renewable energy. At all times, Lebanon does need a comprehensive policy for its renewable and for its uh, electricity sector that takes into account all bypassing all these vested interests and improving the governance, having a solid regulator, improving the procurement. But this is kind of the solution that would keep the lights on when we do get to the point where we no longer have foreign currency reserves. Just in terms of implementation, one of the problems is making sure that the things that are built stay in Lebanon. I remember after the U.S. started reconstruction in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, a lot of the systems the U.S. built were then disassembled and trucked out to Turkey where the materials were smuggled over the border and sold. If you were to do this, what should you do simultaneously to ensure that it benefits the people it's intended to benefit and you don't have people at the top who sell off the equipment and then say, look, we need more equipment? I think there's no way to actually 100% secure the system. But when you do involve the local community, then it's an asset that the property of the local community. So I do hope that the local community is going to protect this. And if it doesn't come from from the government side, then there are lower steps in the value chain for it to, to reach the consumer. The thing about these models is that solar energy, solar panels would last some 25 years. So it, they could remain for 25 years as a property of the Lebanese people. And at all times, even if Lebanon did have a solid electricity policy, would still need to reduce the cost of electricity provision because that's very expensive. And one of the ways to tackle this is by promoting this kind of systems. So it's not something that's going to be implemented just for the short period. It would reduce the reliance on the utility and the cost of electricity provision over the long period of time. You have returned to Lebanon from London, and you see a country that in many ways is in as much disarray as any time you can remember. What do you think the opportunities are to use Lebanon's current disarray to build a better system going forward? And what's the role of energy in creating a better and more durable system for Lebanon going forward, not just in the energy sector, but more broadly? So Lebanon is kind of in a place where we don't have solid foundations in in sectors or in service provision. So there's a huge opportunity to kind of build better. What you can do is also the people have kind of lost hope in a way that things will get better. Um, But normally when you do get to severe crisis, um, there's also a possibility for reform just because the state cannot afford to not reform anything anymore. It doesn't mean that all reforms are going to be efficient or is going to put the country on the right track. And this is why we need all the kind of pressure from civil society and from citizens to keep moving this country forward. The opportunity in the energy sector is that the energy sector is kind of 
a great example of the dysfunctioning of the state because it's nowhere more obvious than in the power sector and kind of providing a glimpse of hope or light in the electricity sector would actually set the tone for other sectors. And the problems are kind of similar. It's, it's mostly governance and vested interests. So improving this sector would actually be an example to lead for other sectors as well. Jessica, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Next up, John, Natasha and I continue the discussion about sectarianism and renewable energy in Lebanon and preview some of the findings of our forthcoming report. So, John and, and Natasha, so Jessica Abed referred to sectarianism as being a constant obstacle to reform in Lebanon's electricity sector. And that might be surprising to some of our listeners, sort of what's the link between sectarianism? How does that work? Why do they have so much control over the electricity sector? What does that look like? Sectarianism is baked into Lebanon. Lebanon hasn't had a census in almost a century because people are concerned that it would shift the sectarian balance, which was set up during the mandate period. And, and, and so much of political and economic power is divided between 18 different religious and sectarian groups in Lebanon. And when the, the sectarian divisions led to the civil war in the 1970s, the way they got out of the civil war in 1990 was essentially embedding interests in coming together with the same sectarian leaders who had started the war. And so you have an economic and political elite, which is wedded to these different sectarian communities and oftentimes wedded to the sectarian division of the country so each one can maintain his or her or economic and political power. Yeah. And, and just to connect it a bit to basic services and, and infrastructure as it uh, relates to the end of the Civil War, is that I should note that the sectarian system was supposed to protect people. That's what it was meant to do. But instead, it sort of multiplied vested interests in every project by the number of sectarian leaders. So all of them needed to be able to line their pockets from every project, whether it's a dam construction or, or a power plant. And then because these leaders also want to show their constituency that they're their protectors and benefactors, they want to ensure that, you know, whatever that infrastructure project is, it's that it's in their area, it's in their sex area. So as these people line their pockets, they're also better able to distribute individual support and assistance to people who aren't getting it as they should be from the central government or municipalities. So if you don't have money to pay for your child's operation or treatment, you go, you go to this guy. And then this just creates this kind of vicious circle of of wasta and corruption. So the people of Lebanon might be frustrated and angry right now about the lack of services in their country. But at the same time, they can't really bank on the government to reform in time to pay their bills that they need to pay today uh, in the immediate term. So they, it, it sort of increases this reliance on this political elite at the same time. And it's almost in the United States like machine politics and Tammany Hall in New York. And you have there's corruption, but it's corruption that takes care of you. 
And if you try to undermine the corruption, you also undermine the social welfare fabric of everybody around you. And it, it has gotten deeply embedded into Lebanon. And I think maybe it's helpful for us to talk a little bit about our own experiences of, of just how bad Lebanon's electricity sector is. I remember quite clearly my first time of moving to Beirut, and I was in a supermarket um, called Spinney's, and I was doing my shopping, and then suddenly all the lights turned off, and it went completely dark for probably about 10 seconds, which felt like a lifetime because I had never experienced that before. And I think what was so remarkable to me was everyone else's reaction around me. And that reaction was that they didn't react. They just carried on going. They somehow knew where their items were that they were looking for on the shelves. And they just put carried on putting them in their trolleys and acted as if nothing had happened. And after then living there, I, I got used to the fact that well, every single day there is a scheduled power cut for a set amount of hours and it works on a rotor. One day it's 3 to 6 p.m., one day it's noon to 3, the next day it's 9 to, to noon. And you start to sort of build your lives around that or, or arrange your lives around that to a degree. But it's every single day there's a power cut. And if you don't have a generator, which as we've heard is is really expensive, then that stops you from doing a lot of things for a chunk of, of three hours. I wonder if either of you have any sort of personal experiences of, of Lebanon's power? I had problem in, in the late Morsi years in Egypt, or the late Morsi months in Egypt, there were a lot of power cuts and, and you just couldn't go anywhere without the power shutting off and the air conditioning going off. It was unpredictable. It was thought to be the intelligence services that were trying to make people dissatisfied with Morsi that led to it. I think what, what's unique about Lebanon is you have a highly evolved system where the electrical company, A, hasn't revised its tariffs for decades, so electricity is cheap, but B, the electrical company is deeply in debt and can't provide reliable services. And it's, it's sort of this very strange situation where the services are totally inadequate, but they're affordable, and it just sort of persists. It's, it seems strange to us on the outside that people wouldn't just rise up and say enough. And yet, people haven't in Lebanon. Or they've tried and they've been prevented because it's such an entrenched system. So, I mean, John, you just mentioned an example from Egypt. I wonder more broadly, what what if this is unique to Lebanon? And what is, are there electricity problems elsewhere, Natasha, in Jordan? The difference of Lebanon is is, is the sheer scale you have a situation where the electricity sector contributes 40%, over 40% to the debt, which is one of the highest in the world. The government has to transfer about a billion dollars, over a billion dollars a year to EDL, which is the state power firm. Uh, so this has gotten completely out of control. It has contributed significantly to the current economic crisis that we're seeing, where we see a plummeting Lebanese lira and, and people's savings completely evaporate. And Obeid mentions that we're, we're on the verge of a nationwide blackout. And the reason for that is because there is a lack of foreign currency reserves to even buy that dirty fuel oil that powers the generators, which is sort of that last resort or should have been just the last resort for people. 
you have fuel oil that's being used that's contaminated and that's watered down to the point where even the generator owners, which were sort of uh, maligned by much of the population as a generator mafia, now unable to, to repair their generators even because of this contaminated fuel oil. So we're really on the verge of, not, not just on the verge, we're in the midst of a catastrophe right now in Lebanon. And the power sector is a very integral part of that. And that's been mentioned by a number of donors and international financial institutions for years. So it should be no surprise. What strikes me in Lebanon is it's the institutionalization of inadequacy. It's not like you have a system that has just collapsed. It's a system that has been embedded despite failing. And now it is so hard, it is so complicated to untangle that that people just keep sustaining a system, which, as Natasha said, represents more than 40% of national debt. It's not investing. It's it's energy that people have already consumed. And it's... it's it, it, what is striking is this has become embedded in the fabric of Lebanese life as opposed to being something that Lebanese are going to set out and fix. Although she suggested that in fact there are some people who want to set out and fix it. And the three of us have just worked on a, a project um, and we have a report coming out soon called Sustainable States. And part of what we've been looking into is um, what are solutions and what are how are people doing things differently and are local communities doing things differently or at least uh, decentralized initiatives. And I wonder, firstly, are there examples of this in Lebanon itself? Um, are there examples of, of people sort of taking matters into their own hands and finding a way around th these problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating when you listen to an engineer like Obeid talk about this, because from her perspective, this, this is an easy fix from a technical perspective. From a policy perspective, it's a much bigger issue. So from the technical perspective, you need to build new power plants. You need to repair the aging ones that are currently operational, somewhat operational, I should say, because there are about 40% technical and non-technical losses in Lebanon at the moment, which is huge. So to her point on decentralization, this is kind of the, the solution that a lot of communities have, have adopted because they're tired of essentially waiting for their central government to reform and provide them these services. So as a result, you do see some villages around Lebanon uh, using solar panels, for example, and using kind of a hybrid system, which she alluded to, but you could essentially use battery storage or use the existing generators as this hybrid model where you would be relying less on a very unreliable, you know, state-provided power. At this point, you actually have places in the South that have had power cuts for, you know, 20 hours per day if they were completely and solely reliant on the government for that. And you see places like Kabriha in the South that have adopted this hybrid solution where they're using uh, generators and the, the solar panels, and they've become increasingly reliant on those solar pan panels over the year um, as the, the situation has gotten significantly worse. So as she mentioned, this could be sort of an interim solution and a solution that could potentially be fed into, 
into long-term reforms whenever those reforms happen to take place. And something that our report, I think, focuses on is the idea of community involvement, community participation, and trust uh, being developed between communities to be able to transition towards more sustainable methods. Why is trust so important in this? When we talk about electricity, we don't often think about trust. Sort of what's the link there? Well, it seems to me that that one thing she was talking about is you want the community to feel vested in the support. You want the community to feel vested in the success of the project so people will protect the resources and not steal them and sell them onward, pocketing the money, but uh, impoverishing the community in the future. There's, I think, a piece of trust, the absence of trust makes people act in incredibly short-term ways. And successful economies that people are willing to invest in requires people to have confidence that that things will last, that things will go according to rules, that they will uh, unfold in at least moderately predictable ways. And trust goes a long way to doing that. And, And, you know, when the government is able to provide services or the government creates an environment where people can provide services, that creates a sense of trust on the grassroots level. And that builds up into patterns of behavior that engender more and more trust. The Middle East is a region, and Lebanon certainly ranks highly among people just don't have trust in institutions. And having local initiatives that can provide sustainable, oftentimes renewable energy that's predictable, that's reliable, creates confidence in municipal government, which creates confidence in municipal government to do other things and and can really lead to a a renaissance of the Lebanese economy and, and Lebanese social and political life. To read more about the relationship between trust and more sustainable service delivery, look out for the report that we'll be releasing in the next couple of weeks, which is called Sustainable States, Environment, Governance, and the Future of the Middle East. And tune back in next week for a Meze episode on fertility in Iran. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.